I want to spend t tonight kind of closing the loop on on repentance, and it's this is a subject that's very important to me, and it also happens to be a subject that seems like I often find myself in discussions uh, with people about either online or in other contexts or classrooms or wherever it might be. And I know we've spent two sessions on it, uh, and of course we didn't meet last week because of the weather, but. Um, we don't have a whole lot more new stuff that I really wanted to bring out, although I do want to talk about remorse a little bit tonight. But I feel like it, it's so important that we really hammer this home that I wanted to kind of spend one more evening dialoguing about it, um, especially because it's one of those topics that you can hear over and over again, but if you've grown up learning it the wrong way, you might hear it in a Bible study like this. It makes sense to you. You're like, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. But you walk out the door, and immediately your mind kind of reverts back to what you've studied and learned for 30 years, right? So uh, uh, this is important, and uh, so we want to we kind of continue that uh, discussion. Now, before we start, I want to sort of get your juices flowing a little bit with some discussion uh, questions. And related to this false notion of repentance and how it allegedly relates to eternal life is the notion of grace. And so I want you to define for me grace. What is grace? Somebody tell me. Yeah. An undeserved gift. Undeserved gift. So what do you have to do to get grace? Nothing. Okay. So how much does grace cost again? Uh, sometimes even negative something. Okay. So, grace, that's right. If it's not free, it's not grace. Say that again. If it's not free, it's not grace. Now, this is so important because you can, you can get people to define grace correctly. Undeserved merit, undeserved favor, a gift that's undeserved. And yet, unwittingly, without really thinking it through, they will adopt a view related to salvation that absolutely obliterates grace. And that's the case with the view that many people hold about repentance. Um, so if it's not free, it's not grace. Now, we become uncomfortable sometimes talking about salvation being free. And that very fact that sometimes we get uncomfortable with it should it sort of gives evidence to the fact that the devil has done a great job of confusing people about the nature of salvation. So I really like to, you know, to, to beat that drum repeatedly and consistently. It's free, 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 free. You absolutely have zero to do and zero that you can do to receive the payment for your sin penalty. You don't bring anything to the table. I had a discussion this week with uh, some folks that were convinced that in order to get eternal life, you've got to turn from your sin. Well, first of all, how can you turn from your sin if, if you don't have the Holy Spirit? Secondly, they say, well, but you've got to be willing to. <clears throat> well, let me ask you. The, you know, the Bible talks about, Jesus actually talks about for believers, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So for believers who already have the Holy Spirit, if our flesh is, is you know, weak and doesn't always allow us to do what we're willing to do, 
How can you require unbelievers to be willing to do something as a condition for receiving eternal life? But besides all that, besides all the logical fallacies, and we're going to come back to this notion of repentance of sin in a moment, but just as it relates to grace, if you've got to bring anything to the table, a willingness to do something, a promise to do something, a pledge to do something, actually turning from something, then it's no longer free. It's a conditional bilateral agreement instead of a unilateral gift. So, you know, Romans 3.24 says we are justified freely by His grace. So, the view that, that uh, I am uh, promoting, and, and which I believe obviously is a biblical view, is often called free grace. And... Uh, you know how theology likes to label things, you know, dispensationalism and so forth, Calvinism and whatnot. And sometimes I'll run across people and they'll say, free grace, you know, isn't that redundant? Well, it is, but it's also biblical. Again, Romans 3.24. We are justified freely by His grace. So it is sometimes necessary to point out that grace, which if you look grace up, it's the word charis in Greek, it's going to mean free gift. One of the uh, primary meanings in the lexicon is free gift. All right? Just like Jamin said. So, but, so, therefore, when you say free grace, are you being redundant? Well, no, because the Bible actually uses it with that qualifier. And in Revelation 22, we read that uh, whosoever will may come drink of the water of life freely. <laughs> now, if you've got to turn from something or be willing to turn from something, or promise to turn from something, or pledge to turn from something, it's not free. You've got a condition. And uh, the, you know, as we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, and I know it's been a couple of weeks since we met because of the weather, but you know, the the notion of uh, of you know repentance as it relates to salvation is comparatively there's hardly any passages that talk about it. And yet, we've elevated repentance to become an instrumental nomenclature in our discussion of, of salvation, right? You look up most doctrinal statements on, you know, the, under the section salvation, it'll say you've got to repent and believe. Well, uh, repent and believe, if you put anything with and believe, you've made it at least two conditions, something and belief. But there's only one condition more than 160 times that the New Testament lists, for, for, or the Bible as a whole, but in the New Testament alone there's more than 160, and that's believe. So it's not believe plus something else. And when you, when you write your doctrinal statements, if you put repent and believe, you've lost me right there. You've, lo you've absolutely lost me. Not to mention the fact that, as I said, repentance, the verbs and the noun, we won't go back and... Uh, review it. What did we say repent means, though? Let's put that on the screen. Change of mind. Change of mind, exactly. So, repent means to change your mind. Repentance is a change of mind. So, the verb and the noun are used 34 and 24 times, combined 58 times in the entire New Testament. Okay. And most of those, the vast majority, are in the Gospels and Acts. And so, people like to point to the book of Acts to sort of build this doctrine of repentance of sin and say, you got to repent of your sin if you want to go to heaven. 
If you want to be saved, yeah, it's a free gift, but you've got to repent of your sin. How can it be free, but you have to repent of your sin? If it's not free, it's not grace, and salvation is by grace. So, uh, but of those 58, only a handful, five or six, actually are in the context of eternal salvation, period. And more than 160 times the New Testament uses the word believe. So it always puzzles me how 2,000 years into the church age we've gotten away from using biblical words with biblical definitions for biblical purposes. The purpose, I mean the, the goal here is salvation and what the Bible teaches about salvation is believe. Now uh, there are a couple other terms that sometimes are used interchangeably like receive. John 1.12 talks about receive, but in the verse itself, it defines how you receive with the word believe. Pistuo, the verb. So, uh, but repentance is, is really misunderstood. Um, so repentance, as I've said before, repentance of sin is nowhere mentioned in the Bible as a condition for eternal life. In fact, you'll never find a verse that uses repentance of sin and heaven, you know, eternal life, salvation, any of those things in the same verse. And as I mentioned when I made that statement a time or two ago, I got a few emails from people who watched the video with listing the verses, but they didn't listen carefully. There are places, and if I misspoke, I didn't go back and listen, but sometimes my mind gets going fast and I may have said it incorrectly, but let me clarify if I did. It's repentance of sin is never mentioned in the context with eternal life or salvation. There are verses that mention repentance, and in the same verse it mentions sin, but they're not, it's not repentance of sin. And what people do is confuse the result with the... Uh, in fact, let me show you real quick. I think this will stay on the screen, so we should be good. Yep. So uh, what happens is... Uh, let's look, for example, at, um, I think it's Acts 3.19, but let me just look real quick. Hang on. Well, I, I, I'm going to come back to 2.38 in a minute. I don't want to start there. Um, Let's see here. 3.19 is the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, all right, so let's start with 3.19. We're going to look at a few here, but um, in Acts 3.19, repent therefore, this is Peter, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Now, what did we say repent means? Change of mind. What did we say? Every time you see the word repent, you should say, change your mind about what? Right? So, before we answer that question, just if you just look at, you know, Acts 3.19, and I'm sorry I don't have it on the screen, uh, for those of you watching the video, but it says, repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. So, the res whatever repent means, grammatically, if we look at this first, the result of it is, the forgiveness uh, of sins. Um, so, but the question is, repent of what? Change your mind about what? It would be a mistake to assume 
that he's talking about repentance of sins. The result is forgiveness of sins, but you're not necessarily changing your mind about sin. There's nothing inherent in the word repent that means change your mind about your sin, right? We talked about that uh, when we looked at some Old Testament verses that use the Greek word repent to translate them into Greek. And it talks about how God repented. So if God can repent, clearly it doesn't inherently or automatically mean change your mind about sin. So all I'm saying is, and I'm really saying this to those who insist that there are passages that, that talk about repentance of sins and salvation, this is not one of them. It doesn't say repent of your sins and your sins will be blotted out. It just says repent and your sins will be blotted out. Like I said, there's not a single verse that says repent or repentance of sins leads to forgiveness of sins or eternal life or anything uh, like that. Uh, let's see. We could look at... Um, let's see. <coughs> Mark 1.4. Mark 1.4. John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Again, the result of whatever this change of mind is, is the remission of sins. But what is the change of mind about? And people automatically insert in there this, this concept of changing your mind about sin. You've got to turn from your sin. But that's not what Mark 1.4 says, is it? We can't automatically assume that repentance always relates to sin. By the way, in this context... John's message was a message of the gospel of the kingdom. And he was preaching to the nation of Israel, change your mind about the kingdom and what you, you thought about it. Because your world's about to be rocked. The Messiah is here. He's going to come and he's going to turn your world upside down. You need, to, you need to repent. You need to change your mind. Right? You're not going to get into the kingdom because you have you know, the, kept all the laws and dotted your I's and crossed your T's and pray long prayers and you know, all of that stuff. It's all about faith. All right. So you, are you following me on this? So uh, I, I couldn't. I want to be as plain as I can. Repentance of sin is never mentioned as a requirement to get into heaven. Now, often I'll I'll hear people, re, you know, really chafe at that, and they'll say this in a sort of a knee-jerk response. Are you telling me you don't have to know you're a sinner to be saved? And I'll say, of course you have to know you're a sinner to be saved. I wrote a whole book with several chapters talking about the core essentials of the gospel, one of which is you've got to mention sin and you've got to know you're a sinner. If you don't know you're a sinner and you don't know you're under the penalty of sin, you don't need a Savior. So absolutely you have to know you're a sinner. But knowing you're a sinner is an entirely different thing than repenting of that sin or changing your mind about that sin, or turning from that sin, all the different synonyms that people use. So let's be clear. You have to know you're a sinner. If you don't know you're a sinner, why would you need a Savior? It's precisely because you're a sinner under the penalty of sin on the road to hell that you cry out and you say, Lord Jesus, you paid my price. You died in my place. I'm trusting you and your work on the cross to provide forgiveness of my sin. Right. But... To, to suggest that you have to turn from your sin or be willing to turn from your sin changes the salvation equation entirely. It turns it 180 degrees on its head. Yeah? You talked about believe, bringing your belief, and that's all you need to bring. So 
you believe that you're a sinner or you acknowledge that you're a sinner and you believe that Jesus is the cure for that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, so belief is the means of receiving the gift. Remember, it's helpful to remember that salvation is a free gift, right? Grace, that's what it's all about. If it's not free, it's not grace. So, but like any gift, it has to be received. So how do we receive the gift? In a physical world, in a physical equation, it's pretty simple to conceptualize receiving a gift. I walk up to Gary, I've got a, a gift, say a birthday gift, or just a thank you gift, or you're a great guy gift or something, and I, and I hand it to him. How does he receive it? He grasps it with his hands. It is now in his possession. He's received the gift. Spiritually speaking, though, we're dealing with the unseen realm. We're dealing with the fallen nature of man, the penalty of sin, the fact that we're born dead in our trespasses and sin. And so we have to receive the free gift of you know, redemption, eternal life, through spiritual means. And the Bible says that more than 160 times the way in the New Testament, the way we do that is by faith. So just picture our faith being the hands that grasp the gift. All right? We don't have to ask for it. Did you realize the Bible never says, ask Jesus to save you? Never. Did you realize the Bible never says, invite Jesus into your heart to be saved? <laughs> never. It simply says, receive by faith. So the gift is already being offered. He's already paid the price. He's defeated death, hell, and the grave. And he offers freely to all the gift of eternal life. Whosoever will, let him come. Right? So you say, boy, the Spirit of God convicts you. The Spirit of God is convicting the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You come under conviction that you're lost in need of a Savior, that your sin has a, uh, is, a, is a an offense to a holy God and comes with a steep penalty of eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. And you say, I don't want to go to hell. I want, I want forgiveness. And so I, I'm going to receive that free gift purchased on my behalf with the blood of Christ. How do I do that? I believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for my sins. So it's not how you believe that saves you. It's what you believe because another thing that people will mistakenly do is they will, um, they will say, well, you know, repentance of sin is part of belief. So that when the Bible says, for example, in John 6, 47, whoever believes in me has everlasting life, when Jesus said that, what he really meant was whoever repents of sin and believes in me has everlasting life. It's just, it's included in belief. Well, where do you get that? I mean, well, that, that's... That's not found in any lexicon. It's certainly not found in the context. Meaning is determined by the context. I mean, if you're going to just start adding things to the meaning of belief, well, then I can say, you know, yeah, it's faith alone, but you've got to also keep the seven sacraments. That's part of faith. <laughs> or, yeah, it's faith alone, but you've got to do good works. That's part of faith, right? You can add anything you want to faith. And so you don't find that definition of faith anywhere in Scripture. You don't find it in any lexicon. You know what you find when you look up pistuo, which is believe the verb, or pistis, which is the noun faith, in any Greek lexicon? It says the confidence or assurance of something. So when you are confident in, in something, you become assured of it, that's faith. Don't say anything about turning from sin. Never. So where does this notion that somehow turning from sin 
is part of the meaning of faith come from? Well, I'll tell you exactly where it came from. And I outlined this in uh, Getting the Gospel Wrong. It came from the Reformation when the Reformers, you know, Luther and the like, broke away from Rome. And, you know, he nailed those 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church. Um, and praise God for that. But they were so entrenched in the works-based culture of Rome that though they gave lip service to faith alone, they redefined faith to require, if it's real, three parts. It's called the tripartite meaning of faith. It's not found anywhere in church history in any documents or any writings until after the Reformation. It was a creation coming out of the Reformation. And you still see it to this day. All of the Reformed guys today use it. Uh, it's the notion of fiducia is the, is the key one of the three legs of faith. They say that faith, if it's really going to get you to heaven, isn't just faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for your sins. It's faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again with, for your sins, and this volitional, willful decision to turn from all of your sin. That's the way they define it. And if you don't turn from all of your sin, you don't have fiducia. So your faith is then spurious. Have you heard the phrase spurious faith before? Again, another made-up word or concept um, coming out of the Reformers. That, that it's the quality or the kind of faith that saves you. So you could have two people, both of whom recognize they're a filthy, dirty, rotten sinner under the penalty of, of, of sin and, and in, in danger of hellfire, and they realize that, and they cry out for a Savior, and both of them recognize that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took their personal place on the cross, died for their personal sins, and rose again, and offers to them the gift of eternal life. And both of them place their faith solely in Jesus Christ to forgive their sin and give them the gift of eternal life. But according to Reformed theology, one of them could be saved and one of them not. Because unless in addition to that, you also, with that faith, included within the definition of faith, promise or pledge to obey or turn from all your sins or forsake all your sins and, and follow Christ, your faith wasn't real. It wasn't enough. It wasn't the right kind of faith. But I, I can't emphasize enough that it's not the kind of faith that saves you. It's the object of faith. When faith meets the gospel, Eternal life results every time. And turning from sin, forsaking sin, repenting of sin is a sanctification issue, not a justification issue. Does that make sense? Uh, did you, were you about to say something? Now, someone had a hand over here. Did I filibuster long enough you forgot your question or no? Uh, you still remember your question or you didn't have a question? I, I didn't have one. You were just stretching like that? Praising God. Praising God. All right, good. <laughs> Listen. Here at Plum Creek Chapel, Chapel, you can do that with one hand, but you can't do it with two. We draw the line there. No, I'm just kidding. No, two, two hands is fine. Praise God. All right. So I want to issue again this uh, challenge for you to, you know, the number one rule of Bible study methods is observation. All right. So, you know, don't send me verses that talk about forgiveness of sin and repentance and say, see, you got to repent of your sin to be forgiven. Nope. You've got to repent in those two or three passages that mention it to receive forgiveness, but it doesn't tell us repent of what. 
So what we have to do is compare Scripture with Scripture because the Bible cannot contradict itself. And if we've got more than 160 places in the New Testament alone that condition eternal life solely on faith, then it's clear that those few passages that describe our believing in Christ as repentance are talking about a change of mind about Christ. I used to think I could save myself. I've repented, and now I believe only Jesus will save me. Uh, I used to think I didn't need a Savior. I've repented. I've changed my mind, and now I know I do, and it's Jesus. So we can certainly describe and be true to the meaning of the word our conversion experience as a change of mind, but that has nothing to do with turning from sin. You, you follow me? And in fact, yeah, go ahead. So you could repent of sin, change your mind about sin, sure, but totally not get faith. Absolutely. Because so you could change your mind about sin and then yeah. think that chanting or something is going to change. Yeah, I've used that illustration a lot. Um, that's a good point. I'm glad you brought that up. So if turning from sin saved you, then, you know, why do you need faith, right? A person could, of their own willpower, just become so disgusted with their own immoral behavior and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quit doing all that. I'm going to clean my life up. I'm going to turn from sin. Or, again, some people say, no, 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 you don't have to turn from it. You just have to be willing to turn from it, which blows my mind because how can you even quantify that, right? Um, but anyway, they might say, I'm going to turn from my sin. Are they saved because they turned from their sin? No. What saves you? Faith alone in Christ alone. Yeah. Are they lost again when they turn back to sin? That's exactly right. So that's the that's the problem. Is uh, you know if turning from sin saves me, then you know and and a lot of gospel tracks do this. You know you you'll you'll uh, I I pointed instinctively I pointed to the lobby because I speak in so many churches and the first thing I do when I get there and I'm setting up our resource table is I look at the gospel tracks and. Not 99% of the time, 100% of the time, there are always some false gospel tracks in those track racks. And so I, I'll usually, when I'm speaking and this idea comes to my mind, I'll say something like, yeah, I bet you out there in your track rack there's some things that talk about repentance of sin, and what they show is a U-turn. So they talk about, you know, what most gospel presentations do is they get the problem correct. They start out with man, sin, you're under God's judgment you need a savior jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead and the people that are lost and reading that they're going wow man this is a spirit of god's using it. And they're like wow okay i you've convinced me now what do i do and then at the end it drops the ball you know like like leon let for the cowboys running for that super bowl touchdown and dropping the ball at the two yard line you know uh, and and they go well here's how you do it. here's how you get saved you solve your problem you do a u-turn and they literally show a u-turn on the gospel track got to turn from your sin right and so i think there are a lot of people who 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 think they're saved because they've turned around they've done a u-turn but they're not saved because if it's faith plus anything it's not salvation so if saving faith is exclusive faith it's not faith plus turning from sin you know if you you know if you think your eternal destiny rests upon your ability to turn from sin then you're not saved. Now, so back to Gary's point, you know, let's assume that that is required. Well, you do a U-turn. What if at any point you turn back? Do you lose it? 
and most people would say, no, I mean, that believe in eternal security like the Bible teaches. Well, then how do you explain it? So then now let's go back to the conversion experience. So really what we're saying is you've got to turn from your sin for at least a little while <laughs> to prove that you're really saved. And if you turn around later, that's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but you don't lose your salvation. Well, why not? If salvation was originally conditioned upon my U-turn, why wouldn't it be decommissioned or lost if I reversed my course again? Yeah. Yeah, it just seems like because, because there is a sanctification that happens upon conversion, just because the indwelling spirit does indeed help you turn from sin, right? there's, there's sort of this, well... A lot of times this is what we see, you know. Somebody's living a life of addiction. They they see that the, the faith in Jesus is a wonderful thing. They believe in it. And then because they've they've done that, God gives them this power to leave it behind because they, they now consider those things um, all as loss. Yeah. And, and so then they're like, well, if that, that didn't happen, then, you know, it must not have been real is but the problem with that is that that's not it's not a condition it's just simply usually goes along with it yeah there are a lot of things that happen that could happen in conjunction with believing in jesus christ and him alone for salvation that moment of conversion some people cry some people rejoice some people uh, publicly proclaim their faith uh, some people uh, are particularly offended by their sin and not only so much so that they realize they need a savior and they trust in Jesus to be their savior, but they actually quit cold turkey some things they were doing. We've all seen stories of that. But we've also seen stories, and I've experienced them firsthand, of you know the pagan, say, young people uh, who are completely just, you know, had no connection to Christ or the church, or anything at all, like from a completely lost concept or context and world. But they come to a evangelistic crusade, or they come somewhere where they hear the, the pure gospel, and they get they trust in Christ, and they know they, they need a Savior, and they, they believe in Jesus Christ to save them. But guess what? You know, the all the piercings don't suddenly fall off and the black goth stuff they're wearing doesn't fall off and they don't they don't in, there's not an instantaneous external change i mean they've got a flesh that has to be dealt with and over time as they walk in the spirit or not after the flesh a healthy normal believer will experience clear you know uh, growth in christ so you use the word sanctification. Remember, there's positional sanctification, which is a synonym for justification. That happens at the moment of faith. We are once for all permanently, you know, set apart as a, you know, part of the family of God. But there's also progressive sanctification, which is a gradual yielding to the Spirit over our earthly life so that we grow, we produce fruit, and, and a believer who's not doing that is not healthy. But it does not mean they're not a believer. Right? I mean, we believers can commit the same sins unbelievers can commit. I don't recommend it, and that's not healthy. But to assume that someone is not a believer simply because of their behavior is as egregious a mistake to me as saying you got to repent of your sin on the front end of it. And they usually go hand in hand, by the way. The people that believe you got to repent of your sin to be saved are the same ones who then come back and say, well, if there's a prolonged 
period of time in your life where you're living in sin, you're not saved. And, and I can see why they would say that. Because if, if, they're, if that person's eternal salvation, according to this false view, was based upon a turning from sin, and they go 10 years and there's no you know, fruit, well, they must not have turned from sin. Right? So they're probably not saved. But we cannot, we've got to, that's why I started out by talking about grace. We've got to get our minds off of works when it comes to eternal salvation and focus on grace. I like what I think you said about, my, you know, sometimes grace is actually a, is a minus, you know, right? It can be, because the, the, not only is grace free, and if it's not free, it's not grace, but the more sinful you are, the more valuable grace becomes. I don't understand how people can say, you know, when I say that a person living in abject immorality could be a believer. Well, I'm not saying they are, but I'm saying their abject immorality has no bearing on whether they're a believer or not at all. It's just works. And when I say that, people say, oh, you're cheapening grace. Mm -hmm. How is that cheapening grace? If anything, it's making grace more valuable. <laughs> because grace, by definition, is free. You're actually the one that's impugning grace when you look at a person's life and you say, wow, look at that person. You know, they're drinking and getting drunk and fooling around and all this. They can't possibly be a Christian because no Christian would act like that. Well, again, maybe they're not a Christian. I, I, I don't know. But if they're not a Christian, you know why they're not a Christian? It's not because they're drinking and fooling around and living in sin. It's because they've never trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. That's the only way anybody gets saved. Yeah. Okay, so people that are preaching this, faith plus repentance, um, and I'm thinking of two examples. Maybe they truly believed the true gospel at one point, but then fell under bad teaching sure. and are preaching this, or they really did respond to a faith plus repentance. Are they saved? Yeah, so, you know, espousing a false gospel, even that isn't necessarily proof that they're not saved. The only thing, only way to know if someone's saved is, has there ever been a time in their life when they trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one who can save them? And you're exactly right. Sometimes people do that, but because of bad doctrinal teaching or getting involved in cults or other, you know, false teachings, they end up now uh, espousing a false view. I think a lot of the Reformed teachers, and I've said this a lot, though I believe they're undoubtedly saved, I mean, not that I have the mind of God, but I just feel like someone that studies the Word of God for as long as those guys have, at some point you just have to believe the Spirit of God convicted them of the pure gospel, and they believed it. But what happens is, over time, they, they've adopted a false view that says, you got to repent of sin, forsake all sin, promise or pledge to follow Christ, or be willing to turn from your sin and believe. And then on the back end, they say, and by the way, if you don't have a bunch of good works, well, you ever, never really believed. Your faith was spurious. It didn't have that fiducia I talked about. And, and that's dead wrong. So what I've said is, I'm not questioning necessarily the salvation of those who are teaching that. I'm just saying that no one today can be saved by believing just that. If, that, if all you've ever believed and heard and understood is the Reformed gospel, this idea that faith has to have a repentance of sin, if that's all you've ever heard, 
on the authority of Scripture, I can say there's no way you can be saved. Because the Bible says to be saved, you've got to hear and believe the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation. And if all someone has heard is a false gospel, then how can they be saved? Right? But I do believe that in spite of a lot of false gospels out there, people are probably saved if they've you know, understood the... I mean, the gospel is so simple, a child can understand it, right? You can say it in 10 words or less. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And what happens is, that's the reason it's so much easier for children to get saved, by the way, than adults. Children understand the notion of faith because they have to have faith for the basic necessities of life. They trust God for food and clothing and shelter and all that. So you come to a child when they're old enough to understand sin and and you explain to them the penalty of sin is hell, and you go, would you like to be rescued from hell? And they go, yes, <laughs> like I did when I was six years old. Tell me how. And you go, well, you just trust in Jesus Christ because he died and rose again for your sins. That's not complicated to them at all. They understand what it means to trust. All i got to do is trust him. Okay, I'll trust him. But what's happened is after 2,000 years... We've so, and the devil's the one behind it, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he's blinding people's hearts. But we've so confused trust and faith and, and, and imputed within them all these false notions of fiducia and repentance and commitment and surrender and making him Lord and promising to stop sinning and forsaking all of my sins and doing a U-turn that, you know, adults are like, I mean, I don't even know what it means to believe anymore. And so it's harder for them. Yeah. Um, I know that uh, baptism is not a requirement of salvation. It's not proof of salvation. But it is proof of a change of mind, isn't it? Well, that's a good point. Remember, we talked about, the question is, is baptism, which is not a requirement for salvation, for eternal salvation, is it somehow proof of a change of mind? Well, remember, repentance of sin is taught in Scripture, but just not as a condition for eternal life. So that's why I say, if you're sinning, you need to change your mind about it. It's a bad idea. Don't do it. <laughs> but even repentance of sin is not the same thing as a change of behavior. It's the reason the Bible says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Right? If repentance of sin was the same thing as a change of behavior, you wouldn't need to say that. So you can repent of sin, but then actually not, you know, do anything about it. People do that all the time. They change their mind about something, feel like, oh man, I really don't need to do this again, you know. And yet the next day they do it again, right? So it's not always the case that our behavior is consistent with our change of mind. So I want to clarify that first. Does that make sense? We can change our mind about something, and then the next step is then to act consistent with our new belief. We've changed our mind. Let's be consistent. But we often don't do that. Okay? Again, not talking about eternal salvation here. But as far as baptism, I think baptism is not as much a manifestation or an illustration of your change of mind as it is just a step of obedience and a statement of commitment as a believer. Remember, Baptism is the next step. It doesn't save you, but it's it's something. It's your way of saying, look, 
you know, I'm associating with the body of Christ and other Christians. I'm identifying with them. I'm one of you, and I'm not ashamed to publicly let people know that. See, baptism, a lot of people don't realize baptism is, uh, is an ancient rite. It, it did not come into being with Christianity. It actually even predates Israel. There were ancient Near Eastern religions that practiced baptism. And baptism always means identification. Baptism identifies you with the follower or the teacher that you're following, I mean. So in the Bible, there are lots of baptisms. There was Moses' baptism. If you, if you experienced that, it just meant you were identifying with his message. Uh, proselyte baptism meant that you were a Gentile converting to Judaism. Uh, John the Baptist's baptism meant you were identifying with his message about the gospel of the kingdom being at hand, of the kingdom being at hand. Um, Holy Spirit baptism, which happens the moment you place your faith in Christ, identifies us with Christ, by the way. That's the, water baptism does not identify us with Christ. People miss that point in Scripture. What does Christian water baptism identify us with? Christianity? The Christianity, the church, exactly. Spirit baptism identifies us with Christ. So, so people uh, trust in Christ, they're baptized into the body of Christ, and then subsequent to that, they want to give a public testimony of their faith in Christ. So they go through this cultural ritual of baptism. And Paul, in Romans uh, 6, uses that cultural ritual, baptizo just means to immerse, as an illustration, a word picture, of what Christ did for us. Now again, baptism predates all of this, but Paul just took a common cultural ritual and said, look, just as Christ was buried and rose again, so too you're buried with him by baptism, and he sort of illustrates the gospel in that way. But baptism doesn't save you, nor does it guarantee you're saved you know some people get baptized and they're not actually saved they've never believed the gospel a lot of people do especially in churches that teach baptismal regeneration you know, say which is that you got to be baptized to be saved right so they go get and all they did was get wet they didn't get regenerated that happens by faith right so the illustration sometimes i'll use with kids is uh, a football analogy you know when, especially these days with instant replay, you know, when, when a touchdown is scored, usually the referee goes like this, right? And when you see that, what do you assume? There's a touchdown, right? <laughs> but what actually determines whether it's a touchdown or not? Whether the ball crossed the goal line, right? So the symbol for touchdown is an illustration or an indication that something has happened. It's not the something that happened in and of itself. And many times, a referee will go, touchdown! And then the other referees will come in and say, oh, not so fast, I had a better angle, that ball never crossed the plane, and guess what? No touchdown. And the person, the coach can't go, no, you, you're cheating us, that referee said touchdown, it's got, you got to give us our six points. I think a lot of people are going to stand before the great white throne someday and say, no, 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 I got baptized. And, and the Lord's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. You know, that, that's what's important is do you know me? And by the way, sometimes you score a touchdown and the referee gets stumbles over a cameraman or trips and falls or whatever, and he never actually does go touchdown, right? But it's a touchdown and you get six points, right? 
And sometimes people get saved and they never get baptized. They should. It's a step of obedience. It's what we should do as a believer. We should pray, read our Bibles, go to church, fellowship with other believers. We should get baptized. And personally, I believe, and I think the Bible backs this up, that if a Christian knows to be baptized, in other words, they've been taught, they understand the importance of it, and they refuse, I think they're out of fellowship with the Lord. They're in disobedience, right? In the same way they would be if they backslid or refused to come to church or refused to pray or read their Bible. It's an important step. But it does not save you. And even if you don't get baptized, if you've trusted in Christ and Him alone, you're going to be in heaven. And moreover, even if you do get baptized, if you've never trusted Christ, you're not going to heaven. Right? So does that make sense? So, yeah. Okay, I have a question um, about an analogy that our Reformed friends use a lot. And if it doesn't fit here, you can say, yeah, that doesn't fit. No, no, fine. But, yeah. So the analogy that they use is that if you're drowning and you reach for something to save you, that that's not getting saved. That you have to be dead on the ocean floor and Jesus comes and this is a... Not a Spurgeon. Who's that other guy? R.C. Sproul. Sproul. Yeah, well, he doesn't believe that anymore, but go ahead. Yeah, that's right. So you have to be dead on the ocean floor, and, you know, your parents are on, on shore weeping and gnashing their teeth because you're dead. And Jesus comes and picks you up off the, off the ocean floor and breathes life into you, and that's how you're saved. But in that case, that person isn't committing their life a willingness to change or anything. They have no life. Right. So how does that fit with it? Well, so remember, Calvinists also believe that faith isn't really what saves you. Faith is the the involuntary response to salvation. I mean, you get regenerated, and you whether you want to or not. you can't. If you're elect, you can't reject the gospel. If you're not elect, you couldn't believe the gospel no matter how much you wanted to. You're completely passive. You have nothing you can do about it. God regenerates you, so their mantra is dead men can't believe. You can't even believe the gospel. And that's simply not true. I've dealt with that extensively in my DVD series on what, what is Calvinism and is it biblical. I deal with it in the book Getting the Gospel Wrong and in uh, Top Ten Reasons. I talk about that just briefly. So, but that's their belief, is that you, 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 you're dead. You can't do anything. God saves you, and then as an involuntary, guaranteed unavoidable response to that, you then believe the gospel. So where does the willingness to not commit sin? So, but be, remember, Calvinism is a five-step, lockstep system. And so what they would say is, if at the moment of faith you don't have fiducia, it proves you were never elect, because that kind of faith is not the kind of faith that God gives you. So the Cal whole Calvinist system is built upon a man is completely and utterly passive. If you're elect, then you're then you then you're gonna believe the gospel. You don't have a, you're gonna be regenerated first. Remember, regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration is the cause of faith, according to Calvinists. The Bible teaches faith is the cause of regeneration. But anyway, so you're regenerated, then you involuntarily believe the gospel, and in so doing, promise to follow God. Then you do, in fact, follow God. So therefore, working backwards, if you're not following Christ and you have prolonged sin in your life or profound sin in your life, well, then they work backwards and say, oh, you must not have kept your commitment. And if you didn't keep your commitment, you didn't have fiducia. If you didn't have fiducia, you must not have believed. If you didn't believe, you must not have been regenerated. If you're not regenerated, you're not elect.
So it's a lockstep system. And uh, to a Calvinist, a four-point Calvinist is a 10-point Arminian. They don't have such a category. It's all or nothing, right? And I don't even like the categories. I had this conversation this week, actually, with a young man who I asked him, you know, how, are you, what do you think about Calvinism? And he said, uh, well, you know, I'm still studying. I haven't really thought about it. I said, well, I encourage you to check out my series. I, I'm very fair and balanced to the the five points. I put it in their own terms. I quote over 100 quotes with their picture and everything of exactly what they think each of these points are. And then I try to show from Scripture, you know, why I think that's wrong. But I said, if you don't mind, I'm not trying to be presumptuous, and you definitely should study it on your own. But do you mind if I ask you five simple questions, and we'll kind of get a, a sense for how many points of a Calvinist you are. And he said, no, sure, that'd be great. The guy's about 25 or so. I said, well, uh, do you think that a person can choose to believe the gospel of their own free will? Oh, well, yeah, of course. Okay. I said, uh, do you believe there is anything we must do to receive eternal life? Any conditions at all? He said, well, yeah, you got to believe. I said, okay. I said, uh, do you believe Christ died for just the elect, or did he die for the sins of the whole world? Oh, no, he died for the sins of the whole world. I said, can a person resist the gospel if they don't want? Can anybody be saved out of 7.5 billion, and can anybody resist the gospel out of 7.5 billion? Oh, yeah, you can resist it or you can receive it. Okay. And I said, can people who've been saved uh, live in carnality and live in, in sin? Or are they guaranteed to produce good works no matter what? He said, no, I think they can live in carnality. And I said, well, sounds like to me you're a zero-point Calvinist. <laughs> you know? So, you know, that's, uh, that, that's really the essence of it. Um, so, um, anyway, so that's, that's my answer to that. The whole issue of that analogy of, well, you've got to be dead on the bottom of the ocean floor, that's because they believe that dead, they believe total depravity means total inability. You, have, you can do nothing. Whereas the Bible, again, says 160 times we have to do something. What is it? Believe. Now, believe is not a work because believe is simply the mechanism for receiving the gift. No more than if when I give Gary the gift, he's not thinking, man, i got to reach out and grab it. What, are you making me work for this gift? That's not a gift. I had to put forth effort. To, no, he's not going to think that. He's going to think, oh, it's free. I'll take it. And faith is the means by which we receive the gift. Okay? And by the way, faith is not a gift, <laughs> the way some Calvinists try to suggest. That's confusing the gift with the means of receiving the gift. Right? Gary doesn't have to say, I'd love that gift, JB, but I need a gift to get it. Could you give me a gift so I can get your gift? And I'll say, okay, I'll do that, but then don't you need a gift to get the gift so that you can get the gift I'm giving you? I mean, it's a confusion of the gift with the means of receiving the gift. Faith. That does sound like something I would say. Well, that's why I thought of you. You're the perfect illustration. Stand up and, uh, you know. No, uh, so, but they say based on Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, but the it or that is the pronoun, is not referring to faith. It can't grammatically because it doesn't agree in gender. It's got to be referring to salvation as a whole. And, and, and that they hang their whole hat on that one verse. And it's so crazy because the whole testimony of Scripture is that salvation is the gift. Eternal life is the gift. 
to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become a child of God. The gift is salvation, not faith. Faith is the means to receive the gift. And it just uh, it makes no sense. So we've been looking, and uh, by the way, the folks watching this on video have been looking at this big screen this whole time, and then my little face down in the corner. But sorry, trust me, you don't want my big face on the, on the screen. But, uh, but I do want to point out that a lot of the discussion that we've had tonight is logical and philosophical and all that. But the ultimate question that matters is what does the Bible say? Amen? And there is no passage in Scripture that conditions eternal life upon repentance of sin. Repentance? Sure. In the sense of you've changed your mind and believed in Christ as the only one that can save you? Yeah. There's a few. But not very many, actually. Out of the 58, there's only five or six. And I've listed them all in an appendix and uh, getting the gospel wrong. But uh, but but in those cases, it's not saying change your mind about your sin to receive eternal life. It's saying change your mind, period. And we have to contextually and theologically understand about what. And changing your mind about sin doesn't save you. But I wanted to uh, mention one thing so we can kind of close the loop on this. And that is repentance and remorse. Just like as Sally and I were talking about here a second ago, repentance is not, a repentance of sin, we'll say, is not the same thing as changing your behavior. It's often used interchangeably that way. Um, so if you're a believer, it doesn't matter whether you're a believer or not, if you're just someone who's sinning, <laughs> I mean, I hope you're a believer. I don't hope you're sinning if you're a believer, but I'm going, let me start over. <laughs> Regardless of whether someone's a, a believer or not, they should not sin. <laughs> It's not a good idea. It leads to great unpleasantness. So if I'm counseling you and you're living in sin, I'm going to encourage you to change your mind about that sin. And you may say in the course of it, you know what, you're right, Pastor. I, I shouldn't be doing that. I've repented. I've changed my mind. I see you the next day. What I'm going to ask you is, did you change your behavior too? Did your repentance of sin lead to fruits that are worthy of that repentance? Because they're not the same thing. Many a person, you know, has... I, I did this just recently. I'll just tell on myself. I mean, not a particularly heinous sin, but let's be honest. We're transparent. We, we love each other, and I'm sure you've done the same thing. But we like to play board games at night around our house after everybody's finished their homework, done their studies. We've had dinner. And in our house, a different person makes dinner uh, each night. And uh, whoever's night it is has to clean up the kitchen, too. And when everybody's done, we like to play Catan, Settlers of Catan. I don't know if you've heard of that game, but we are big time invested in that game. We love it. Very competitive family. And I uh, recently had decided while I'm playing, I would have a great big bowl of Bluebell ice cream. And I got way more than I needed and certainly, you know, more than I should have gotten. And, in fact, later that night, laying in bed, I felt sick. And I, I changed my mind about that decision. I thought, that was not a good decision. I should know better at my age. Guess what I did the very next night? I succumbed to the temptation. By the way, it's a new flavor, at least new to us. It's, it's cookies and cream and chocolate chip cookie dough combined. Now, I cannot think, and trust me, it's good. Yeah, but you didn't have as big a bowl like you 
you did the night before. Right? I did. I'm afraid of Sonic. My fruits were not worthy of the repentance. And I repented again later that night. And the next night, it took. It took two nights of not feeling too great in my stomach to realize, you know what? You need to not do it. So repentance of sin. Again, this is not talking about eternal salvation. If you're a believer, you should repent of sin because you're going to face the discipline of God like we talked about Sunday in our Hebrew series. You're going to um, lead to all kinds of consequences. If you're an unbeliever, it's a good idea to repent of sin too. But more important than that is you need to come to Jesus and trust in Him and Him alone as the one who can save you. Um, so, so repentance of sin is a change of mind about your sin. But then it should lead normally, if it takes, to a change of behavior. Similarly, repentance is not the same thing about as remorse. So um, remorse, remorse can lead to repentance, a change of mind, but they're not the same thing. And we get this from 2 Corinthians 7. I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Well, how many times have we been told mistakenly or ignorantly, that repentance is sorrow. Oh, I'm so sorry for my sin. You've repented. No, you haven't. You've just gotten felt sorry for your sin. So if we wanted to put these three in the same context, conceivably, one could feel sorry for their sin, remorse, and then that may or may not lead to a change of mind about their sin, and that may or may not, that change of mind, may or may not lead to a change of behavior. You follow me? So we need to understand the terms and what they mean. And so in the same way that you know, a turning from sin or a willingness to turn from sin are not a requirement for salvation, neither is it a requirement to be sorry for your sin. Right? You have to know you're a sinner, but you don't have to be sorry for it. Some people are, some people aren't. Often, as I think it was Jeff that said, some people, when they come to that moment of faith, are absolutely brokenhearted when they realize who God is and who they are. But, you know, as a six-year-old, I wasn't particularly remorseful. All I knew was that my sin had a steep penalty that consigned me to hell. And I didn't want to go to hell. So I wanted to be saved. What does saved mean? Rescued. Rescued from what? The penalty of sin. <laughs> So, um, you know, that's another thing. Sometimes people get frustrated with me because they say, well, salvation is not just, you know, fire insurance. That's exactly what it is. It's exactly what salvation is. You know, Christ didn't go to the cross just so you could be happy and healthy and wonderful and contented and have meaning and purpose in life. <laughs> he went to the cross so you don't have to go to hell. He rescued you from the penalty of hell. Now, it's true. It's also true. That if you know Jesus by faith, you are going to have a whole new outlook on life. You're probably going to have more peace and contentment and purpose and meaning. And you're going to understand life through the lens of Scripture and God's spiritual perspective. All of that's true. But that's not what I'm wanting or, or that's not what I'm seeking when I get saved. I'm getting saved from not my loneliness. I'm getting saved from hell, which is why it's called salvation, right? So, but anyway, so I just wanted to point out another misnomer about repentance here, that repentance, sometimes people confuse repentance and remorse the same way they confuse repentance and a change of behavior. 
Paul said, uh, godly sorrow, remorse, can lead to repentance. That repentance, a change of mind, can lead to a change of behavior, bear fruits worthy of repentance. But they're not all the same thing. There's subtle nuances of difference. But uh, the bottom line is, the best passage, as we started with three sessions ago, that sort of puts repentance in the context of eternal salvation was when Paul was speaking to the Ephesian elders in Miletus in Acts chapter 20, and he says, here's what we've been saying. We've been talking about repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a good way to describe the conversion experience. I've changed my mind about God, and that can involve any kinds of changes of mind. I now know He's holy and I'm not. I now know that I need to be perfect positionally, and the only way to do that is through His Son that He sent to die in my place. I mean, you could change your mind about a lot of things, but whatever I used to think as it relates to my eternal destiny, I've changed my mind about that. And I'm trusting the Lord Jesus Christ to save me. So repentance as it relates to eternal life is limited to a change of mind about God in the, in the broadest sense. But repentance of sin is not a requirement to get to heaven. And it can't be. I mean, think about it. If, even if willingness to turn from sin was a requirement, how can you measure that? How could you ever have assurance? You would wake up every day wondering, boy, was I willing enough? Maybe I wasn't willing enough. All right, any last-minute questions, and then we'll wrap up and let try to beat the storm. Yeah. So, uh, you know how Gary was saying how uh, what happens to you if you uh, you turn twice and go yeah. back? Yeah. Uh, what would you say to a person who, um, like, uh, would say, what happens if someone decides uh, that they don't they no longer believe that Jesus can uh, Jesus uh, can save them from the penalty of sin I know the Bible teaches eternal security but it uh yeah, there's people who just get so hung up on their own sin they're like gosh I'm wretched I just yeah. it just doesn't seem like he would want me yeah even though I know I believe it now now I just think I'm just too gross well, so that's that's a, that's a that's a good question too. But where my mind went, so I'll I'll give you my thoughts on both of them. But first of all, when you said you know referring back to what Gary said, you know the U-turn twice, an image popped into my mind of uh, Chevy Chase in European Vacation when he's driving around and he goes, "Look, kids, Big Ben, the Parliament. Look," and he can't get out of that circle. You know, look, kids, Big Ben, the Parliament. He kept saying that over and over again because he can't get out of the circle. And that's really what life becomes if your eternal destiny, you think, is based upon your ability to U-turn, because you're not going to be able to be perfect until you put off this mortality and put on the glorified body and you leave sin behind entirely. So justification is the once-for-all rescued from the penalty of sin. Sanctification is the progressive being rescued from the power of sin as we yield to the Holy Spirit. And glorification is the once-for-all rescue from the very presence of sin when we leave this earth. As long as we're on this earth, we've still got the flesh, we're going to struggle. But back to your question. First of all, 
The amazing thing about justification is it happens at a point in time. When faith meets the gospel, the result is eternal life. And what, no matter what happens after that point, it cannot undo the empirical promise of Christ who said, I give you at this moment, present tense, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. If something could happen after that punctiliar moment in time that ultimately meant I go to hell, then what Jesus said was a lie. What he should have said was, if you believe in me, I give you the possibility for eternal life or the prospect for eternal life or the potential for eternal life. But he should not have said, I give you eternal life if, in fact, something down the road could put me in hell. So that being the case, what about those who stop believing? Well, we kind of talked about that Sunday. If you haven't watched that video, I call it Believers in the Hands of an Angry God. Go check it out at the Not By Works website. But, uh, you know, it is possible for believers to ultimately defect from the faith. And we have examples of that in Scripture. But the great promise of God's Word is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, that says, even if we, so Paul's putting himself in this, and this is literally weeks before he was martyred when he wrote this, the last letter he wrote in 67 AD. He said, even if we are faithless, meaning we have no faith at all, we have abandoned the faith entirely, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. See, our spiritual DNA changes the moment we trust in Christ and believe the gospel. And we are now a child of God. So even if we say, I disown you, Lord, I'm mad, something happened, I get angry and I become shipwrecked, we're still heaven bound. Nothing can change that. So, yeah. So, would they say, since they, they have this, uh, I forget the word again, but the, that faith includes repentance and all the, uh, of sin and all that, would they say that once you've done all that once, then the same thing applies? Well, they would say, see, here's the difference between Calvinism and Arminianism, in a nutshell. So those are big words, but Calvinism is the reform the view that came out of the Protestant Reformation that we've been talking about. Arminianism was the opposing view that just comes right out up front and says, you've got to do good works to be saved, period. And you can lose your salvation if you stop doing good works and all that. That's Arminianism. Calvinism, which rejects that, and rightly so, on the face of it seems to be saying faith alone. I mean, that was the cry of the Reformation, sola fide, faith alone. But again, they redefine faith so that it, it makes works a required result. And so the difference between them is Arminianism says you've got to do good works to be saved. Calvinism says you've got to do good works or you never were saved. But either way, without good works, you're going to hell in either scenario. So what I've said and others have said this is that both Arminianism and Calvinism actually paved the road all the way back to Rome and Catholicism unwittingly. Now, Calvinists would vehemently, you know, uh, protest such a statement. But, you know, ask a Calvinist sometime, is it possible for a believer to be in heaven someday who produced no good works visibly? They're going to say, absolutely not. They have to do it. And they would say, they don't do it. God does it for them. Because remember, the whole package is God does it. But if they didn't do it, it means God didn't do it. And if God didn't do it, they weren't elect, Right. So I want, even R.C. Sproul, I think it was Sproul, well, I can't remember now. If it's not him, I apologize. But 
one of the leading Reformed scholars was famous for saying, I can only be 99% sure of my salvation. Because in his theology, if he were to, to defect from the faith, like we talked about in Hebrews, in his theology, that would prove he was never saved to begin with. Why? Because in his view, eternal salvation is contingent upon a willingness and a commitment and so forth that God will guarantee you do. And if you didn't do it, you didn't have it. Uh, and I don't know about you, but 99% sure is not sure enough. I want to be 100% sure. And I can be. And you can be too. Based on the promise of Christ, who said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has, present tense, eternal life. Yeah. A lot of people get saved on their deathbeds. So sure. They, they can't make a lot of good works during their... No, they can't. And, you know, in, in fairness to the, the my Calvinist friends, they would say, well... You have to produce good works if you have the opportunity. So that's what they would say. So, yeah, the thief on the cross comes to mind and others. Um, but the takeaway here, and again, I, I, because this is such an important issue, is that the Bible never conditions eternal life upon repentance of sin. That notion comes out of the Reformation. And it comes basically out of Arminianism. And it's the same thing Paul taught. Uh, in Galatians, the first letter he ever wrote, he rebuked a group of people that were saying, it's not just faith, but you also have to be circumcised. you got to do something else. And so that's why I say if you put anything with faith, if it's blank and faith, it's a false gospel. It's faith alone. And then, and then some people try to slip it in there by saying, well, okay, it's not blank and faith. It's faith, but we're going to re redefine faith to include a bunch of baggage of stuff that you have to do and call it faith. Well, if you start doing that, I can't, I mean, I can't really, I have no defense against that. You could say, you know, you got to, it's faith alone, but faith means you got to, you know, stand on a tabletop and whistle Dixie. Okay, well, if that's how you define faith, I mean, I don't know what to say. So that's why we often talk past each other because Calvinists say it's faith alone. Dispensational grace guys say it's faith alone. But what do you mean by faith? Yeah. It is. It's such a joy. Amen. Our pastor says, why aren't people in church more joyful? Right. You know? Yeah. And um, I think there's a human element that makes it difficult to believe you can get something without earning it. Absolutely, yeah. Battle yep. to, you know, you have to get to that point where you decide, I believe that, because right. it says it. Yeah, one of the ten top ten reasons people go to hell is pride. They can't believe they can get something as valuable as eternal life for nothing. They just they feel like they got to do something. But you're right. I mean, the people that espouse these views often, and I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but often they're some of the most bitter, unhappy people. They ju they're judgmental. You know, they look at people who are struggling with the big sin, the visible sins, and immediately say, there's no way they can be a believer. But if they were honest with themselves, they would know they're struggling with some of the same sins listed in Galatians 5, for example, that they've been struggling with their entire Christian life. And yet somehow that's okay. That They're still saved in their mind. But these guys that might be struggling with something that's more visible, they just write them off. And again, I'm not suggesting that everybody who's living like the devil but says they're saved is automatically saved. I don't know if they are or not. But what I can tell you is they're not automatically not saved. Because there's no sin that a believer, that an unbeliever can commit, that a believer cannot also commit. So 
you know, remember those list of fruit of the flesh there in Galatians 5. It, it's not just homosexuality and sorcery. It's jealousy, anger, uh, covetousness, you know. So who among us, right? And uh, so, yeah, I think you're right. It is, it is amazing grace. If it's not free, it's not grace. And that's what makes it good news. The minute you add requirements to it, however good they sound, because by the way, repentance of sin preaches, let me tell you. I mean, I, if I was a big emotional altar call kind of guy, and I used to be years ago, I can get a lot more people out of their seat by preaching repentance of sin than I can come get the free gift, right? Because if you tell me all I got to do is make a commitment, sign me up. I'll do, I'll, I mean, I really, I'm emotional, I'm crying, I'm bitter, I'm, you know, angry with myself, and I'm thinking, man, this is, I got to do something, I'm, you know, this is terrible, I feel terrible about myself. Well, come forward, you know, and you hear these hellfire preachers talk about, you know, Jesus went to the cross for you, the least you can do is come out of your seat and come forward for him. So people flood the aisles and sign a card, and they feel good, but what happens a week later, <laughs> right back in the problem, because they did a double U-turn. Look, kids, Big Ben, the parliament. So, all right, yeah. If I get stuck in the snow. There's nothing that we can do beforehand to be worthy of God's grace. Amen. But once we have it, there's nothing we can do afterwards that will make us unworthy. That's right. Boy, that is well said. That's a great way to end. Nothing. I'm going to repeat it in case it didn't get picked up. It should have from where you're sitting. Nothing we can do beforehand to make us worthy of God's grace and nothing we can do afterwards, after we get saved, to make us unworthy of God's grace. All right? Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together tonight. Lord, I just pray that you would uh, help us to be champions of grace and to stop muddying the waters with all of these requirements and contingencies and these things. Lord, help us to just truly be amazed at what this wonderful gift is, paid for with the highest price, the blood of your Son and our Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's go get some blue bunny.